Welcome down to my nine-foot homemade oak bar. Pour yourself a cold one. You are listening to Bucks in the Basement. My name's Chris, and Craig here is the biggest Pirates fan you'll ever meet. Let's talk Pirates baseball now. Welcome to Bucks in the Basement. Now I see the changes in this town. They change, they say one thing, but then the next day. Foot homemade oak bar for yourself a cold one. My name is Chris. His name is Craig. This is Bucks in the Basement. 30 minutes of Bucks for fans, by fans, and uh, still hurting, my friend. I'm still hurting. Went down to Kentucky, did the uh, the bourbon trail, uh, several days of drinking, and um, I tried to drink all the bourbon, and it didn't work out, Craig. Didn't work out very well at all. I mean, I can't see how, you know, a 40-some-year-old man <laughs> drinking like he's in his 20s <laughs> Or, or pro- actually, probably early twenties, maybe even like nineteen, like late teens. Yeah, yeah. When, when you could just basically drink and wake up the next day and not feel anything. Yeah, dude, I drank at the Steeler game last weekend on a Sunday afternoon, and I didn't feel like myself until like Wednesday. Yeah, and what I did is I did three straight days of ten a.m. first tasting at a distillery. I mean, I was sitting at Bullet Bourbon ten a.m. on Saturday. For a tasting after starting at 10 a.m. the day before at Rabbit Hole Distilling. Like, I can remember all of them. I had a great time on it. I- I'll give you a quick uh, recommendation. Uh, I would say Peerless is great if you go down there. I thought that was a lot of fun. I got to meet the owner. He was awesome. All right. I uh, I would tell you that Evan Williams, the most amount of booze you're going to get for free. They are the first Kentucky distillery. And they have a really cool speakeasy. And they give you a ton of free booze because after you do like the tasting, which is five shots of different uh, bourbons and rye whiskeys, you go into the into the gift shop. And if you just point at a bottle, if you glance at a bottle, somebody runs up and says, you ever tried it before? Here's a shot. I mean, I'm surprised I even got out of Evan Williams. Totally worth <laughs> totally worth going to. OK, uh, and then the one that I would say was the most disappointing Angels Envy. Just a terrible tour, barely any uh, alcohol given to you, and uh, they just kind of rush in and rush out. I wasn't a big fan of it, so I, I would I would avoid that one. But I, I went to, like, I think 10 of them over the course of the three days, and then plenty other stops in between. I had a great time, and uh, yesterday I fell asleep on somebody's shoulder on the airplane, and uh, then I took a really long nap just to wake up and go to bed, and today I'm just finally able to talk. Because I, I couldn't even talk yesterday. So luckily I'm able to do the show today because we've got what? We've got a guest on the show. We've got Zips projections that are out. And I have to ask right off the bat, how are we in the middle of a lockout and Justin Verlander can get a contract done? Because I thought that was all done. Remember that? Like if you didn't have it all signed with the physicals, by the moment it hit midnight, you couldn't get a contract. And yet somehow it's official with the Astros today. And that makes no sense to me. Yeah, Chris, that before the show, we're talking about it. And like they were saying up until the point where they, you had to like have all your physicals done. You had to have all the paperwork done. It had to be signed by this point in time because at the lockout, nothing could happen. But for Justin Verlander, 
you know, the union and Major League Baseball can somehow come to an agreement to make sure that this contract is signed and this man gets his money. It 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 just kind of shows how ridiculous this whole thing is. That's why Major League Baseball is kind of a joke to people. Like, the NFL and NBA and even the NHL have to be looking at Major League Baseball and being like, you guys are all such jokers. Like, it, it, they have to be, Chris. I think they are. They look silly right now because this is a clearly planned lockout. They've known they were going to lock out no matter what. They were never going to reach anything by the 1st of December. Uh, this was all a game. And then they and the owners basically then said, and now we're just going to take December off. We're going to let you sit through the holidays and sweat. We'll and we'll we'll start talking again in January. Like it, you know, and it sucks. It sucks for baseball fans. You know, it sucks for us. You know, doing the podcast and everything like that. It, it's no fun at all. What's going on? And the real shame is we'll all turn around and we'll still give them money. We'll still be like, I love baseball so much. I'll put up with this junk. Introduce our guest, and then I want to go through the zips thing. But who are we going to be talking to today? Um, I had talked to Spencer uh, Smith, the uh, broadcaster for the Bradenton Marauders, toward the end of the season. Told him I'd get back in touch with him. We we wanted to sit down and talk about uh, the automated strike zone was in the league that the Bradenton Marauders were in. It was the only one in minor league baseball that did it. And I wanted to get his feedback from talk. He had talked to some players about it uh, and how they felt about it coming in and why it was used with the younger players. Awesome. That's right now on Bucks in the Basement. Found anywhere a podcast can be found and always at BucksInTheBasement.com. And as everybody knows, I'm a little bit of a minor league, uh, I guess it would be, I wouldn't say connoisseur, but maybe an adventurer. I've been to a bunch of different ballparks, like to look at the prospects and everything. And a guest that we had on previously, Spencer Smith, broadcaster for the Bradenton Marauders. Want to check in with him and maybe catch us up on some stuff that we uh, we didn't get to touch uh, as the season was ending. Uh, Spencer, how you doing today, brother? Craig, doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing real good, man. Like we were talking about before, you're enjoying the fun in the sun. I'm enjoying the the depths of winter up here in Pennsylvania. Not a lot of snow yet. But that cold rain just kind of gets to you. But uh, let's talk uh, some Bradenton Marauders here. But the biggest thing that we were going to talk about, and we were kind of waiting for the winter meetings. I thought it might have been discussed more, but with uh, you know the MILB uh, lockout, uh, I mean the MLB lockout, the MILB side of it kind of just got, you know, it was just basically like you were saying a, a bare bones crew before the show. Uh, but the one thing uh, that a lot of people didn't know, especially at the beginning of the season, was the use of the automated strike zone uh, within the minor leagues. And the Bradenton Marauders were one of the teams that kind of got to experience that. Yeah, yeah. So the low A Southeast, most ballparks, there, I believe the only exception was uh, Daytona Beach. Uh, all other ballparks in the league this season were equipped with the ABS technology. And I have to say from the guys I did talk to, including both players and coaches, the reviews were generally positive. Now there are some bugs that have to be worked out still in terms of, uh, I remember actually close to the beginning of the season, there was a mid game malfunction of the ABS technology and the home plate umpire at the time uh, neglected to inform both managers 
uh, on the field that he was switching from ABS to manual ball and strike calling. Um, but th- thankfully, to my knowledge, at least, that didn't happen again during the season. And uh, I think that's just one of those inherent wrinkles that's going to come with new technology. And, and that's why they're testing it out here in the low levels of the minors. you got to kind of give yourself a relatively low-stakes testing ground for this new technology that, you know, I think at this point, most people are pretty sure sooner rather than later is going to matriculate up to the major league level. But uh, again, in talking to some of the players, uh, Eli Wilson, catcher who began the season with us down here in Bradenton, was one guy I got to pick his brain uh, quite a bit on the subject. Uh, he generally seemed to in, enjoy its implementation. He said that there were, and this was actually a day or two before the switchover uh, in terms of the mid, the dimension adjustments of the automatic strike zone. Uh, he said there were some some low strikes getting called at the time, and then uh, and there were just certain wrinkles that were taking some players by surprise. But he seemed confident that it was a positive addition to the game of baseball, get a lot more consistency in uh, what's called a strike and what's called a ball. And so again, just to wrap it up, I I think uh, the the comments and the the early impressions I think were pretty positive, and I think that that's a good sign for where the game is headed. Yeah, and my like that was kind of one of my bigger questions there was is how it would affect uh, the catchers and and calling the game, uh, the receiving end of stuff, and then also uh, the pitchers and hitters as well. Uh, and I guess it would probably be a better idea to institute it within the lower minors for guys that didn't have, I, I mean, I wouldn't say like, as, they don't have as much experience. Uh, and to get them used to it when they're younger, as opposed to throwing it in on a bunch of older guys. Exactly. And you kind of hit the nail on the head right there in terms of the potential ramifications of throwing it on older guys, at least in the context of the game of baseball. You know, the, those are guys who've been around the game a little bit longer and who, you know, I think like any other professional baseball player that they, they would do their best to adapt quickly. But I think that in starting this in the low minors, you, you get guys who are who are new to it anyway, uh, you know, pretty much from the get-go getting used to this new technology that will probably become a lot more prevalent. Uh, I would not be surprised if it's implemented a little more, little further starting even this coming season. I like the way they've they've rolled it out slowly, at least. It wasn't a wholesale change, a wholesale addition, uh, but the way that they rolled it out this past season and then sort of took the time to evaluate it and made the midseason adjustment um, to the, the dimensions of the strike zone, I think that generally yielded some positive results. And, and as a, with anything, there's always room for growth and improvement. So I think we're going to continue to see a lot more of that as time goes on. And I uh, I also, just to throw this in here, I think any perceived difference in player statistics in the long run, I don't think that's going to be as major as some folks might expect because if anything, I think players both on the hitting and the pitching side of the matchup are just going to have a much better feel for what kind of strike zone they're working with. Uh, day in and day out, they're going to see a lot more consistency as opposed to, you know, you got – <laughs> for a major league example, you got Joe West behind the play one day, Angel Hernandez the next day, C.B. Buckner, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be a different feel almost every night the way it is currently. So I think this added consistency is going to be a really positive change. Yeah, and that was just kind of like a question if, if you had spoken to any pitchers and uh, and hitters directly. If 
if the hitters, because if it's going to affect the statistics, like I'm a type of guy that that digs into, you know, how a guy performed, what his strikeout rate is, how he's how he's managing the strike zone. Uh, was there anything on their end that they thought it was like a little bit more difficult on the hitters' end to manage the strike zone? And and was there anything from the pitchers where where they were thinking? that this would have normally been a strike, but but they, you know, or do they just kind of roll with the punches? They generally roll roll to the punches, and, and you have to keep in mind that at this level, uh, a lot of young and raw players, especially a lot of the guys coming, uh, you know, from from international markets, a lot of the, the younger guys from the Dominican Republic or from Venezuela, um, guys who have spent some time in the Complex League and in the Dominican League, uh, these are guys that are playing with a lot of energy and I think are, are kind of coming out ready to attack anyway and probably aren't going to uh, put too much stock into, you know, so rigidly what's a strike and what's a ball. They, they And I, they know in the back of their minds also that when they hopefully advance to the next level, at least at this stage, uh, that, that ABS technology is not going to be in place. And actually in talking with Eli Wilson in particular, uh, one of the – primary topics that keeps coming up in terms of developing catchers and drafting catchers as it concerns their defense. And I know this was a point of contention and of discussion when uh, leading up to when Henry Davis was taken first overall, that you're going to, you might see teams start to give a little less emphasis to the guys who can frame well and the guys who are elite receivers given the perception that automated balls and strikes are going to become the mainstay very, very soon. Uh, but Eli Wilson made, made a good point in my interview with him midsummer that until that becomes the case, catchers should take it upon themselves to be hungry for improvement and advancement to where they're still framing and they're still doing every, everything they can to receive in a traditional and effective way because you know, you get promoted from the low A southeast up to the high A east, for example, that ABS technology is not going to be in place. So that receiving and those framing skills, those are still going to be crucial. And then on up through the rest of the farm system. So uh, he, he made some good points. And then in talking with both pitchers and hitters sporadically, uh, they really didn't seem to be taking uh, taking all that too seriously in terms of uh, having the rigidity of the balls and the automated balls and strikes uh on their mind and just and sort of defining their game in that way i think they a lot of those guys were just staying themselves i guess is a simple way to put it and really not changing their game uh to cater to the automated balls and strikes and its dimensions and its quirks and i think that's the way it should be those guys did a good job staying true to themselves and of course (laughs) i i had a good uh front row seat to all this and the marauders winning the league championship a talented bunch of guys, but it, it's it was really encouraging to see not only them but also other teams in the league uh, players really staying true to themselves and not really trying to tinker with their game so much to fit around this automated strike zone that, of course, is an integral part of the game now. Yeah, and I mean we all know that it's coming, and like I said, some people didn't even know that that it was there, and and may still not have even known it was there when they're checking to see. You know, when they're congratulating the Marauders on winning the championship and stuff, and, and they had gone through that. But one of the things that we had talked about before was that uh, having the lower levels of the minors kind of tweaked and messed with, and kind of other ones just taken away, 
uh, prior to this season happening meant that there was going to be a decent amount of younger players. Uh, I looked at it and I saw that, you know, over the past couple years, the average age of the Marauders team itself, and, and I know that it was, you know, it was that high a uh, team at that point in time, but it was like around like 23 years old. The low A teams were, were usually around like 21 to, you know, 22. And then this year on the offensive side, uh, the Marauders were, I believe, about right around 20, maybe just a little bit over. The pitchers was just a little bit higher than that. Um, so we, uh, before we got on here, I was talking to you, we, we were talking about maybe seeing some guys repeating the level. And in the past, that may have been seen as a negative. What would be your thoughts on guys you know, that maybe took that jump a little bit before they uh, would have taken it in previous years, having to repeat the level again this year? Yeah, there are there are definitely a small handful of guys who are on the team this past summer uh, that I could see potentially repeating the level. And uh, as you just indicated, uh, a lot of that's through really no fault of their own. I mean, guys like Alexander Mojica were really thrown into the fire this past season. Uh, Mojica in particular, ju- just as an example, started the season at age 18, turned 19 early August, and although we saw plenty of the power that he's trying to use it as as his MO moving forward, and that was his sort of his calling card entering the season anyway, uh, the strikeout numbers were a little bit high, although he did show some midseason improvements uh, and the adjustability to lay off some off-speed pitches outside the strike zone. Um, but guys like him who were entering the league at, at an age far below the league average uh, I think we're really swallowed up and done a disservice in terms of not being able to play at that short season level. So, you know, whereas the West Virginia Black Bears or the Bristol Pirates, you know, coming all the way through the 2019 season, uh, that afforded a lot of guys who are at stages of their careers similar to uh, guys like Mojica, uh, you know, and company. That that really gave them a good platform to. Uh, you know, sort of take that next half step of development, if you will. But uh, th- that's not to vilify the current system. I-, I think there are there is still plenty to be said for, uh, you know, challenging players and pushing them what is actually a little bit of a further step now. Uh, but that that is going to be something that uh, player development personnel are going to have to get used to. Uh, as long as this is the case. And I, and I think, uh, again, just sort of circling back to the original point, uh, guys like Mojica or maybe Michael Escoto or uh, even Dario Lopez, guys who start off pretty raw and young but who show plenty of promise, uh, have that possibility of repeating that level at least to begin the season. Uh, but again, that's, that shouldn't be some, a huge tick against them, especially as compared to in past years before this whole uh system and the whole organization of minor league baseball changed yeah because i mean there was guys i mean when we talked about last time there was people asking you know when's this person that was just drafted and and you know was in the fcl like when are we going to see them in bradenton and, and our answer and, and at the time was just like well you might not see many of those guys because in previous years like you said they would have either stayed the whole year in the fcl or they would have started in the FCL and then maybe went up to Bristol for a few games or some of the college level guys we've seen in previous years went to West Virginia, but that wasn't the case. So it's kind of going to have to, we're going to have to get used to that new normal. And especially after 
a season without minor league baseball and then having to come back, some of the guys may have started a level that, you know, was to challenge them. And and some of them, it might have been uh, them seeing that they needed to, you know, just maybe start off at the level they had been at before just to kind of, you know, get back into the swing of things. And, and I think we're going to see, you know, people and, and players and and management styles adjust to that. And next year for the Marauders, I, I think it's going to be uh, just as exciting, man. I mean, with all the players that were just drafted and, and guys that uh, didn't even get their feet wet in professional baseball outside the FCL, uh, you're going to have a heck of a crew there next year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I got guys like Bubba Chandler, who is definitely uh, sort of one of the headlining names coming into this next season. Uh, Anthony Solomato, who, of course, people are kind of tabbing early on as the next Madison Bumgarner, potentially. Uh, there are a lot of exciting names to watch. And they, as you just indicated, uh, a lot of them are uh, that crew that finished last summer in the complex league and that had folks buzzing a little bit, or are we going to see them here late in 2021? Obviously that didn't happen with most of them. And then uh, of course had Henry Davis and a couple of other guys who skipped Bradenton entirely and went straight to IA, which is even, even pre pandemic would happen quite a bit um, in terms of going straight from uh, at least before the pandemic, it would be more short season ball up to IA skipping low A. But, yeah, definitely an exciting uh, uh, crop of youngsters I think we're going to see uh, in 2021. I think if all goes well, we're going to see a lot of movement uh, probably even uh, even before the midway point of the season is reached. Maybe not necessarily with the guys that played last year in the complex league, but maybe some of those guys who finished the season in Bradenton and who began 2022 in Bradenton, uh, they would hopefully be on the move before long and then give rise to even more of that talented group that finished the 21 season in the complex league. Yeah. And I think that that's what has um, a lot of pirates fans excited. A lot of even just the minor league baseball fans excited is to, you know, you got the the first year after the pandemic under your belt and can now move on hopefully in, in more of a, a regular fashion. And especially if we want to get this, you know, this build as Charrington calls it uh, sped up a little bit to get some of these guys moving throughout the system. Yeah, definitely. And I think with uh, with the trade of Jacob Stallings to the Marlins, which I know, uh, A, shocked a lot of fans, and B, maybe even left a sour taste in the mouths of many uh, onlookers, that, that I think was just the latest example that Carrington is you know, willing to take any step necessary, even if it means, in, your ca- in this case, uh, you know, trading away a well-respected gold glove catcher who had a solid reputation, good rapport with the pitching staff uh, in order to get a couple of promising prospects and really make every little step on route to that rebuild uh, that that he seems to be delivering on very solidly so far. And, we, and I'm sure we're all uh, very excited to see the eventual results of that. For anybody that doesn't, uh, you need to follow uh, at the Spencer Smith uh, once again, broadcaster for the Bradenton Marauders. Spencer, thanks for jumping back on, brother. Can't wait to do it again. Absolutely, Craig. Thanks for having me. Good stuff, Craig. I like it. Let's talk about the Zips projections put out by Fangraphs. Uh, this is one of those things that has always confused me. They're basically trying to figure out what F-War everybody's going to be worth. That's the Fangraphs wins above replacement to try to project teams. 
And and the way I look at this, and and tell me if you disagree, these projections come out, and I just kind of look at them and go, man, all right, we'll see what happens. Because many times you'll see a player not perform the way that they expect it. You'll see the standings be very different than what they say is going to happen. I mean, maybe the best of the best, it it makes you feel better about how good your team's going to be that year. Maybe the worst of the worst, it, it it confirms for you how bad your team is going to be that year. But other than that, I don't know how much stock I put into it. What did you think about the projections for the Pirates? Well, the first thing is is that it's it's really hard to project out such a young team, especially since Dan Zamborski, who does the Zips projections, he takes like you know other years into account. He puts it into a computer system. The more recent years are weighed more heavily, and he also has in there like pretty much every single player that has played uh, since the dead ball era and has like their ages and everything. So it's kind of like working, trying to work out, you know, if a player, say a Brian Reynolds is, came into the league, you know, not super old, but a little bit older than some of like, you know, like a Juan Soto or of course like a Wander Franco or something. Like how is he going to progress and how do most players his age progress? So, I mean, I think there is like, I wouldn't put a lot of stock into it, but I think it gives you kind of an idea of where like the middle ground may be. And he he's even said before when he's written up the zip stuff is that, you know, this is like kind of like the middle of the road projection and that probably about 10% of the players, you know, go above that projection and 10% of the players like by odds go below that projection. So it's just kind of giving you an idea of where these players could sit. But even before the show, Chris, we were talking about how I thought it was kind of weird in there that Matt Frazier, I mean, a guy that I was pretty high on from this season, performed well at Greensboro, performed well at Altoona, isn't on the 40 man, has like the fifth highest offensive projection like on the entire team. So I don't know how that kind of stuff works out where – they're thinking that, you know, they're going to run through Travis Swaggerty, Kanan Smith and Jigba. They're going to go down through Jack Swinski. They're going to go through Cal Mitchell. They're going to go through all these guys, Anthony Alford, Greg Allen, and then somehow get to Matt Frazier. And then Matt Frazier is going to get added to the 30, the 40 minute stick. I think that's where these like things kind of go like off the rails to a degree, but it's always kind of fun to look at. And it's basically showing what we already knew, Chris. The Pirates have the potential to be pretty, pretty bad this year. Since Dan Zamborski wrote the entire write-up of the Pirates' bullpen right now in, like, some form of Latin. He starts off the article saying that he was going to write, like, things that weren't even words and see if his editors noticed because that's how bad the pitching is. And then he throws a paragraph in. That's in Latin, which I thought was pretty funny. It's one of the best parts of the article, which shows how bad things are. Now, there is something that I take out of it, and this is what I take out of it. I take out of it that your third base position and your center field position, which is Brian Reynolds and Cabrian Hayes, have much bigger projections than any of these other positions because those are your stars in the field, and that's important because you want the projection to show it wasn't fake 
last year, or if there was a downturn with Hayes, he's going to come back. That's a good thing. The, but when I look at that, you know who also has a high projection? In fact, this position has a higher projection than center field with Reynolds and a, high, and a, and a slightly and a, and a higher projection than, uh, than Hayes, and it's shortstop. And it's not because Kevin Newman is listed on there along with this other player because he's going to have to be there for a little bit of time if they're still having to play service time games, depending on how everything goes. But when they add O'Neill Cruz in, they project him to be as valuable of a player as Cabrian Hayes and Brian Reynolds. And that's that's one of those things you take, you, you put that feather in your cap, and you feel good about, I think. Yeah, I think fans should feel good and, and hope that, I mean, O'Neill Cruz is is a guy that can speed up this build, rebuild, retool, re-whatever Charrington wants to say. Uh, it speeds it up. It could a little bit. You know, Ono Cruz is a guy that I was worried about when he was put back down in A this year because I've always said he had a hole in his swing. He gets hurt, which usually getting hurt is bad for a ball player. He goes into it and completely revamps his swing and comes out and is pretty much untouchable. Like he, anything anybody throws to him, he's putting it over the wall. He did it in double A for the rest of that time. He did it in triple A. And when he came to the majors, I mean, he hit one of the most impressive home runs I've seen in a while, just because it was thrown at his shoestrings. He barely flicked the bat and then, you know, it's over the right field wall. So I feel like, like I said, there's that height right there. If he gets it in time, I mean, we've seen when a guy gets hot, like Brian Hayes did at the end of 2020, where you can put up numbers like that. And is it saying that he's going to be that hot or that high for, you know, the rest of his career? Maybe not, but you need somebody to step up other than, you know, Brian Reynolds and Brian Hayes. So that does show at least a little bit of hope on the horizon. And for the people that are like, you know, looking at Brian Reynolds and saying, you know, 3.9, I think that Dan even like kind of defended himself to a degree somewhere I saw it where it was like, this is what, you know, a player that has had, you know, a a season like Reynolds at the age that he's, that he had it at, the potential is there for it to go down. Does it go down for everybody? No. No. But th- there still is that p- potential. But he's not saying that Brian Reynolds is going to fall into that category. I feel like some fans would be concerned because it's like, you know, Brian Reynolds isn't still that six-war player. But I would still say that you have, like, three pretty darn good ball players to build around. But then also the projection for Brian Reynolds is still taking into effect that terrible 2020 season. And that's the problem. That's the problem with all these projections. The Brian Reynolds projection is wrong, Craig. I mean, it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, good author. I got no problem with him. I've read him several times. We've had fan graphs uh, on here before. Okay. But the the Brian Reynolds projection is wrong because anybody that takes 2020 into account in any way in evaluating them, him is, is mistaken, 100% mistaken. All right. It was a shortened COVID field season. We went over this on this show. Okay, his wife going through wife's going through the first pregnancy. You could actually see his splits on the road and at home. It was so stark. You could tell that here's a young guy that was going through an awful lot in the middle of a pandemic with a little bit of added pressure. You don't know what guys were going through during that 60 games. 
throw it out. 2019, 2021, look at that. Guarantee if that's what they did, his projection would be higher. I'm not worried about it at all because I can discount it. I can say, okay, thanks, Fangraphs, but yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> now I see the changes in this town. They change, they say. 